Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 53. If you'd like to go there with me, we'll be reading the entire chapter. So Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide my, him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Chuck. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that on this Sunday before Christmas that we can reflect on a very important text, one that reminds us of the beauty of what it is that your Son did for us. And we ask that whether we celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve morning or on Christmas Day or in other family celebrations, that we would be reminded of the beauty of what this season is all about. And so I pray that you would teach us today, Holy Spirit, about the beautiful paradox of the suffering Savior, and that today we might be encouraged for those who know you, Lord, and for those who don't, that today might be a day when their eyes would be opened and they would see clearly the beautiful reality of what it means for Jesus to have come and to pay the atonement for our sins. And so we ask you now, Lord, to be honored as we spend time in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many of you are familiar with the literary and rhetorical device called a oxymoron. How many know what that term is? Okay. Let me explain for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. An oxymoron is when you take two words that really shouldn't go together and you put them together to either um, make people stop and think, um, to... um, say something funny, or to make some sort of um, point. So let me give you a few examples, and we'll get kind of uh, at the low end, and then I'll get to the more complicated um, 
as we go on. So here's a couple of my favorite ones. Jumbo shrimp. Clearly confused. Virtual reality. Some of you will get these when you're like, oh, okay, you go home. Um, act naturally and slightly pregnant. Okay. So an oxymoron can also be used in a sentence where, um, again, you're trying to set something up, maybe a little bit humorous or to make a point or just, huh, I never thought of it that way. For instance, one person said, um, we are not anticipating any emergencies. Always be sincere, even when you don't necessarily mean it. And then my favorite from Yogi Berra, no one goes to that restaurant anymore, it's always too crowded. So. There are also oxymorons that are intended to make a point, sometimes even a political point or some sort of commentary on culture or things. For instance, for instance some people would say that these are oxymorons, a Los Angeles expressway. If you lived in Los Angeles, you know why that's an oxymoron. Congressional cooperation. <laughs> Educational TV. Productivity committee. And I know I'll get some emails on this one. Sorry. Motorcycle safety. Okay? So an oxymoron is designed to take two things again, put it together in order to make some sort of point. Now, for those of you who are younger, you, you may not understand, well, like, why is Los Angeles Expressway? I don't understand. Well, if you lived in Los Angeles, you'd know that there are expressways, but they're never express in their way, right? They're, they're more like parking lots. And so the thing is, is as you get older and understand various contexts in life, that these things tend to take on new and more significant meaning. And that's just part of growing up. For instance, there's words as a child maybe you didn't really understand the full meaning of. Um, For instance, we had this happen to us as a family a a week or so ago. My wife was telling our boys that they needed to be sure that when they're getting ready for basketball that they had everything packed in their bags, you know, their shoes and their towels and everything else because they had to go to practice, get changed, and then head off to school. And so she said, now don't forget, have everything in there, including your toiletries. And from the back seat of our, our, uh, our vehicle, Savannah just started cracking up. She's like, toiletries, toiletries, toiletries. And we were like, what? And here's what's going on in her head. She's thinking this. She's, she's thinking toilet trees. And then, of course, we all started laughing. So the, 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 the point is, is that sometimes it takes life and experience and time to know how words go together and then sometimes when they don't, right? So sometimes it's funny when these words go together. Sometimes it, it's, it's to make a point. And then there's sometimes when the words that go together are just like eternally and significantly seriously important. And that's what we're talking about today from Isaiah 53. And today what I help you understand is what some might consider the oxymoron or the paradox of suffering Savior. Now, for many of us who are, know the New Testament, and even if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here but you know Christianity, you will know that Jesus dying on the cross, I mean, that's, that's the basics of Christianity. But you need to know that when those two concepts first came together, the idea of a suffering Savior, there was... There was a lot of tension because those things don't really seem to fit very well. In fact, in an Old Testament mindset, the idea that the Messiah would be a sufferer, oh, that was, that's a foreign concept. The Messiah was the one who's come to deliver the people, to, to be a strong ruler, to have him suffer, let alone die. That doesn't really even seem to fit. That seems to be a, a bit of an oxymoron. So, 
It's not only important for you to know this about Jesus and as it relates to Christmas, but it's also important for you to know that a paradoxical understanding of life is really what it means to be a Christian. I mean, the day that you received Christ as your Savior, you became a follower of one whose life was a paradox, and therefore your life is going to be a paradox. In fact, the whole point of what I'm trying to make today as it relates to Christmas and everything else that we're talking about is this, that Christianity essentially is a life that is a beautiful and traumatic and eternal contrast. There's all kinds of contrasts that we embrace. And what I want you to think about this holiday season, when you wake up and you've got this beautiful moment with your family, or maybe it's just you with a small group of people or in some gathering, and you think, you know, this is great. I want you to be reminded that, yeah, this is great, but this is a really paradoxical moment. We have the Savior of the world who came as a baby and then grows and dies in order to purchase redemption. And so we're going to talk today about this idea of a contrast and what it means. From Isaiah 53, I want to show you four different contrasts, and then I want to intersect this into our lives and what it means for those who follow Jesus to embrace this paradoxical or this contrasting sort of mindset. Now, you need to know that Isaiah 53 is written to a group of um, Jews, particularly the southern kingdom of Judah, while they're in captivity. They're in exile in Babylon. And Isaiah 53 is a picture of the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. And it's given to the people of God in order for them to know and understand that God is going to keep his promises. You see, they're in exile. And they look around and they're like, what about all these promises that God made? And we're in exile. How is this going to work? And so God tells them about the suffering Messiah, tells them about the Savior who's going to come in order to give them hope that even when they're in exile, there's some great things for them to think about and that they can bank their life on God's ability to keep his word. And I think it's really important because this is the holiday, the time of year, a holiday season when there's a lot of us who are going to feel like exiles. You're going to go and hang out with some family and you're going to be like, how in the world did I get here? I don't, these are my kin, but... I feel like an exile. Or or maybe you're going to um, have an opportunity over the next number of weeks to talk with somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And, and there are moments, not only this holiday season, but even in the next year when I, I would guess you're going to feel an exile. And so what do we do about this exile mentality? Well, one of the things is to look at Isaiah 53 and see how much this paradoxical life was a part of Jesus' existence and his ministry. So the first paradox or the first contrast is this, that Jesus was rejected yet chosen. What's crazy is that he was chosen. He's the chosen one. That's what Messiah means. He's the chosen one, and yet he is fundamentally rejected. Now, this song of the servant, this is the the fourth song of servant in Isaiah, and um, it actually begins in chapter 52 in um, verse 13 where Isaiah first begins to call this person the servant. Look at it in your Bible, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And then notice the the song begins by indicating what the end result is going to be, that he will be exalted. He shall be high, he shall be lifted up, and shall be exalted. 
And then verse 15, it talks not only about his exaltation, but also that it will be global in its scope. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And so the idea is, is that eventually this chosen one will be exalted and will have a ministry and affection that will be global in its scale. But when we come to chapter 53, verse 1, which is kind of an interesting chapter division, the, the song takes an immediate right turn. It just it, it hits a complaint. And the complaint is this, verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? In other words, who believes us about these things? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so... Isaiah captures this tension that every God-fearing, gospel-loving person feels at some time in your life, and probably often, and that is this. Why is the advancement of God's kingdom, why is the message of the gospel as communicated to the world not received by everyone? In other words, why is this so hard? Why is it that we live... In the midst of a world that is so broken and the message of the gospel isn't just immediately received with gladness. You've probably wondered that. Maybe you have a family member or a relative and you just think, why? They are so close to the kingdom. Well, Isaiah 53 answers that in part. There's a blindness. There's a hardness of heart. In fact, when the gospel writers like John and Paul reference the hardness of people's hearts, they actually quote Isaiah 53. For instance, there was one time when Jesus was healing people in John chapter 12, and the text says that he did many signs and wonders before them, and they still did not believe in him. And then John interprets that lack of belief through the lens of Isaiah 53. He then brings in Isaiah 53 as a cross-reference. He says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, implicit in the message of the gospel is a constant, often, rejection of it. Furthermore, when Paul, talking about those who didn't obey the gospel in Romans 10, he also cites Isaiah 52. He says this, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, if you are a proclaimer of the gospel, which we all ought to be at some level, then the reality is you need to get used to that message not always being received. You know how hopeful that is? That means that you're free. That means if someone receives it, you got to go, wow, <laughs> that's unusual that the normal uh, footing of our perspective ought to be, I'm going to share this, and in all likelihood it will be rejected. Why? Because the orientation of the human heart, the context of the culture are set against the, this good news, this gospel. In fact, that's the way it has always been. Even Jesus himself faced this. Look at verse 2. It continues this contrast by giving us some of the reasons why people rejected the servant of God. There's two reasons. First, because Jesus lived in a spiritually dead culture. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So the idea is the world in which Jesus Jesus lives, not unlike ours, is dry ground and he grows up like a young plant. It's unusual. The, The earth is hard and packed and then there's this rare jewel of a green plant that grows. Secondly, he's rejected 
As well, the gospel is often rejected because he wasn't attractive or appealing. He had no form, verse 2 says, or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he's, he's not going to be desirable. He's not going to have any awards. He's not going to win a Grammy. He's not going to win a um, Dove Award. He's not going to have his face on Time Magazine as the person of the year. He's not going to win a Nobel Peace Prize. He's not going to be affirmed and accepted by the world. And that's important because isn't that a natural tendency of ours? We want people's approval. We think that we need to have them like us. And yet Jesus in his life and ministry, that wasn't the characteristic pattern. Verse 3 then gives us the conclusion. It says he was despised and rejected by men. Despised mean that people were it means that people were careless about it. They couldn't care a thing. And therefore, they didn't accept him. Further, verse 3 says, He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What does this mean? It means that he was a man who had all sorts of grief and sorrow upon him, and therefore people concluded that he must not have the favor of God on him. If he has all of this sorrow and this grief connected with his life and, and, and ministry, then that means that Somehow God must be displeased with him. Text goes on and it says, One from whom men hide their face, he was considered disgusting. And finally it says he was despised and not esteemed. In other words, people didn't consider him worthy of concern. They didn't consider him worthy of allegiance. So you put all that together. Here is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's God's son. And yet he's summarily rejected. It's important for you to understand that this is the way that God is going to save the world. He's going to save His people, but the pathway of that redemption will be difficult and it will be continually characterized by rejection. So, this is written to people in exile. Why would God send this kind of message to people in exile, I think? And one reason would be he wants them to know what his plan is, but I think there's another reason. I think it's, it's written to encourage people that rejection actually fits into God's plan. I mean, that's a, that may be a new category for some of you. Rejection actually fits into God's plan. Maybe it was to help them know that God hadn't rejected them and to give them the kind of faith that, frankly, some of us need when we fear rejection because of our faith in Christ. So the argument could go like this. So what's the worst that could happen to you? They could reject you, and that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And I think, therefore, it gives us great boldness and courage. And some of you... Perhaps what God is saying today that there needs to be a new level of edge, a new level of boldness as you go and spend time with some family members this Christmas holiday and say, you know what, God, give me the right word to say and help me not to be so afraid. Help me not to be so afraid that I'm going to be rejected. I don't want to be um, make a bad name for Christ. I don't want to somehow have things um, be poorly represented. But at the end of the day, this thing of approval, that they got to like me before they listen to me, Lord, help me to be just like you and realize that I'm your child and regardless of what happens, I'm still your child. So he was, he was rejected, yet chosen. Here's the second thing. He was afflicted, yet obedient. Verses 4 to 6. The contrast that we see here is 
between affliction and obedience. And I mentioned this before, but let's unpack it a little bit further. You would assume that if somebody is afflicted by God, that they would be afflicted because they are disobedient. And that's sort of a normal human way of thinking about things, right? Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Yet the book of Job and all throughout the Old and New Testament tells us, no, 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 that good things do happen at times to bad people and bad things do happen to good people. So kids, just get this in your head. You probably heard, you know, things that naughty and nice list and, you know, the kids who are naughty get lots of presents. Sorry, the kids who are naughty get, you know, no presents and the kids who are nice get lots of presents. I've got news for you. There'll be presents for you and it has nothing to do whether you're naughty or nice. It has to do because your parents are nice. That's what it is, right? Right, parents? Can I give amen out of that one? All right, so preach that on Sunday morning. These presents aren't because your kids are good. You're awful. Merry Christmas, right? The reality is your parents are gracious to you in spite of how awful you've been for 2012, right? And you know why your parents are like that? Because they know how, that's why God has been, how God has been to them and how their parents were to them and everything. So we have this connection between good things happen to good people. No, 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 no. That's not correct. And yet, at first blush, that might be the way that we think about this Messiah. He was afflicted and yet he is still obedient. Central to the gospel is the fact that God afflicts somebody who's absolutely obedient. In some respect, the Old Testament saints may have had an understanding of this because they put their hand on a sacrifice and they transferred their guilt to an animal who had nothing to do with their sin but then was the recipient of their punishment. But in this way, they wouldn't have thought that the Messiah would be afflicted because after all, he was going to be their deliverer, let alone that he would die on the cross. Look at verse 4. It says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I love that. It means that Jesus entered your fallen world. He entered my fallen world. He experiences our brokenness. He, he weeps at the reality of sin and death, like at the tomb of Lazarus. And this is also why Jesus heals people, why as a part of his ministry he cured illnesses and diseases because he wants to communicate that Jesus has come to make things right again. Every cancer diagnosis, every death that happens, every time someone gets sick, every illness that we experience are all a product of the fact that we live in a world that is fundamentally broken and needs Jesus Christ to come and take it and make it all new. And the beautiful thing that happens is he bores our, he bears our griefs and he carries our sorrows. It also says that we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There's words three times that are used here. He's stricken, he's smitten, and he's afflicted. And the idea is all by God. God struck him, God smote him, and God afflicted him. And the implication is, is how could he be the Messiah with that level of divine disfavor upon him? must have been hard to come to the conclusion that God was pleased with him. Look at all of the things he experienced. There was divine discipline, and that seemed to imply divine disfavor. And then verses 5 and 6, they set the record straight. These are some of the best verses in all of the Bible. But he was wounded. Isaiah explains it. But he was wounded for our transgressions. I love this. Oh, that we never get over the wording of this text. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's a paradox. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So verses 5 and 6 interpret this affliction of the obedient one. Here is the scandalous paradox of the gospel. And it is this, if you've never understood this, let me make it clear and plain to you. It is that the servant, Jesus, is punished for your transgressions. He is crushed for your iniquities. He is he endures the chastisement that we deserved. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus takes your place. His suffering results in the blessing of others. His punishment creates peace. His wounds create healing. That's the paradox. Jesus' death gives you life. His wounds give you healing. His crucifixion means you can be forgiven. It's, it's just an amazing paradox. In fact, there's a text in the New Testament that, and I've said this before, unless this was penned by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, I don't know how you could even have this kind of wording and be okay with it. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, He, meaning God, made Him, Jesus, for our sake, He made Him to be sin. That's an unbelievable statement. He made Him to be sin. That's what I can't believe is in the Bible. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. And then here's the glorious good news. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's unbelievable. God made him sin, even though he didn't have any sin, in order so that we could become the righteousness of God, even though we didn't have any righteousness of God. The paradox is he pours out his wrath on one who didn't deserve it, so he could pour out his blessing on those who deserve nothing but his wrath. This is the paradox of the gospel that Jesus, though he was perfectly obedient, was afflicted as if he was totally disobedient. Why? In order for God to treat those who were totally disobedient as if they were perfectly obedient. It's the great exchange. It's the great paradox. This is grace. It's amazing grace. What's amazing about it is the contrast between Jesus and you. He deserved nothing and gave everything so that you could receive everything that you didn't deserve. He was afflicted, yet obedient, so you could be declared righteous even though you're not. It's amazing. So, on Christmas morning when you're receiving gifts or whenever it is you celebrate, I want this thought to be in your mind. Everything I have, I've received from Him. Everything. This family, this house, this presence, the breath in my lungs, this morning coffee that I'm drinking or tea or whatever you want, whatever it is, that you, everything you have is a gift from a kind God who through Christ considers you righteous if you've received Him. Third. Third, He was condemned yet innocent. Verses 7 to 9, the third contrast deals with the injustice and the unfairness of it all. The servant doesn't deserve the condemnation that he receives, and yet he bears it, and he bears it with unbelievable humility. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That will 
show up again, that phrase, open out his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So even though he experiences oppression and affliction, the text says that he's, he's silent. I mean, that's, that's completely paradoxical, isn't it? I mean, just think of it in your life, in my life. Anytime we experience an injustice, isn't, isn't it very tempting to say something about it? I mean, come on. You can hardly have someone take your parking spot at the mall without you going, hey, right? <laughs> or someone cuts in front of you at McDonald's and you're like, man, go ahead, get your Big Mac. <laughs> we have an injustice and we say something about it or we want to do something about it. About two years ago, somebody pulled out in front of me on the highway. I was torqued about it. I had my whole family in my car, so I... And my wife says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to... I'm going to look at him. <laughs> and she said, why? I, I had nothing to say. I was like, because that'll get him. I don't know. What, what do you look at? What, what, what does that do? So we can hardly experience an injustice without doing something, right? Now you live in this world. Come on. Same, same as I do. And we can hardly say nothing when something wrong happens to us. And here is your Savior who experiences the ultimate injustice and he's absolutely silent. If you could jump into the pages of scriptures in the New Testament in the crucifixion narrative, you would want to jump in the middle and say, well, stop, stop. You don't know what you're doing. You'd want to speak for him. This is the Son of God. You are killing him. Don't you know what's happening here? And yet he is absolutely silent he was condemned yet innocent to make this point even more evident isaiah uses the comparison to a lamb led to the slaughter or a sheep before its shearers is silent now i don't have any experience shearing sheep and i thought first service that this was a contrast to a sheep that makes lots of noise and somebody who has experience in sheep shearing told me no no, no. sheep are silent they're like dumb silent when they're being sheared And that's news to me, but that's apparently what's going on. Jesus is like a lamb who's absolutely silent when he's being sheared. I I thought it was more like my dog when I take her to get her nails clipped. You know, I don't have any experience shearing sheep, but I have experience with my dog. And it's absolutely ridiculous and embarrassing. In fact, on my little file at Petco, it says, owner must be present. I have to hold my 70-pound huge dog as she wails and cries like a pig as they are... (laughs) clipping her toes it's it's hor- and, I, and i want to get out of there as fast as i can because she you think you're cutting her cutting her arm off and she's just Woo! and it's just ridiculous <laughs> that's what i thought sheep did but apparently not so unlike my dog sheep apparently are quiet when they're being sheared and the point is this that the savior while he's being led to the slaughter and while he's being sheared is absolutely silent and it's designed to create incredible tension We'd want to say, say something. Just say something. Make him stop. And yet he will, here's the thing, he willingly embraces the condemnation even though he is innocent. Verse 8 magnifies it even further. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, meaning it wasn't just, just bad things. It was, it was terrible. It was planned. And then secondly, as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken by for the transgression of my people. In other words, the people who were doing these things had no idea what they were doing. So it's not only that it was unjust, but it was ignorant, making it even more tragic. 
And then verse 9 tells us what will become clear in the New Testament, particularly in Matthew chapter 27, that Jesus will be treated like a criminal and then buried in the grave of a rich man. And they made his grave, verse 9, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. There it is again. So what's the point here? The point is this, is that the servant is absolutely innocent and yet he is condemned. And that this contrast, church, between the condemnation of the innocent Messiah and the gracious covering of the sins of those who deserve punishment is the reason why we sing things like, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Listen to this text. Listen to the contrast. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And then the paradox gets so sharp in the last verse. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. You see it? The contrast, the paradox. It's the essence of the Gospel. It's the heart of what happens at Christmas. And it's the message in Isaiah chapter 53. Fourth and finally, He was crushed and yet He is victorious. Again, another amazing paradox. The text ends with a glorious statement of victory in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now, this text shows us that everything that happened in Jesus' life, everything, including his betrayal and his crucifixion, his condemnation and his death, were all... Not accidents, nor were they things that God just allowed. I'm going to push you a bit on this. The text says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Meaning that according to the definitive plan of God, that Jesus' death was all a part of the divine plan In fact, Peter, when reflecting on this and preaching to the very people who had crucified Jesus in Acts chapter 4, he said this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. In other words, they were morally responsible for the death of Jesus, but God in His sovereignty had willed the crushing of His Son. It didn't happen by accident. It wasn't that God just allowed it. It was that God determined in His sovereign will for the Son to be sacrificed. Now why is that so important? The reason that that is so important is because it creates tension as it relates to the sovereignty of God. But that tension, as it relates to Jesus' death and the sovereign purposes of God in it, are answered for us in verse 10. 
Second part of the verse says, when his soul makes an offering for sin. In other words, it was the will of the Father to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him in order that what? His soul could make an offering for sin. And then it says, he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, it is the will of the Lord to crush him. And that sovereign purposes has beautiful designs that then led to the salvation of people. He makes an offering for sin. So why is that so important? It's important because in this snapshot, you can see both the sovereignty of God and his purposes, and you see it clearly in the death of Jesus. You can see it, that he had sovereign purposes, and yet he crushed his own son, and yet the purpose was in order to redeem the world. Why is that important? Here's why. Because there will be countless times in your life when you will not see the second half of verse 10 in your experience. You will only see the sovereign purposes of God and you will wonder, why? What is going on? Why is this happening? What is the purpose? And what do you do in those scenarios? Do you just simply say, well, it just, you know, it just kind of happened. It was by accident or God just allowed this to happen. Or could you have a ro- more robust understanding that has gaps in it, but those gaps sound like this. I don't know why this is happening, but I know whom I believe in. And I know that he is faithful to his word. And I know that all of his intentions and his aims for me are good, even though I don't see how, uh, how they all work out. In the life and the death of Jesus, you can see that God has a definitive plan. And he also has gracious purposes. And the Bible promises the same thing for you. So for some of you, 2012 has been a horrible year. And I just have to tell you, everything that's happened in your life, all falls under the sovereign hand of God who controls all events, things that have happened. And you have no idea all of the good aims that God has intended in those things. And you may know one day in this lifetime, you may never know, but one day you'll know. And when you see the whole plan, you will know that God has had a plan for your life that is fabulous beyond your wildest dreams. And in this season that we're in, in this lifetime, it's our role just to trust Him and say, God, I don't know why. I'm going to trust you. And in the meantime, you're going to work hard because you're still morally culpable, just like the Jews were, just like the people who Peter was preaching to. Friends, this is really important for us to understand, especially right now in light of where our nation is relative to the senseless violence that happened in Newtown, Connecticut. People are scrambling for answers. They are wrestling with the why question from the irreligious to the religious the irreligious, they have their explanations, and the religious have their explanations. And in some cases, I wish the folks who were religious would just be quiet. Because their, their, their thin answers don't help anybody, and I think they make a, a bad example or give a bad voice to evangelical Christianity. I think now is the time for us to simply be able to say things like this. You know, we live in a really broken world. And what happened in Newtown, Connecticut is just evidence of how broken our world is. We have so many challenges and pains and issues. And what all of this reminds us about as we try and grapple with solutions is that at the end of the day, you could do all sorts of things. Yeah, you could put a a guard at every school. You could take every single gun away in the whole country. You could find all kinds of legislation and everything else. We could become an armed state. And the reality is you never change the heart. This is an opportunity for us to say, grieve, don't blame, grieve and say we live in a broken world and oh, how this world needs Jesus to change people from the inside out. He's sovereign and rules over all. 
And yet he has divine purposes beyond what we could possibly dream. Verse 11 makes the plan even clearer. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's what the plan is. He crushed the Son in order for that plan to come online. It's beautiful. Verse 12 concludes our treatment of the servant with a promise of victory. He says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressor, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's where it all ends. It is that the suffering Messiah, the suffering Savior, intends to make atonement. And therefore, God exalts him. So this is the paradox of Christianity. It is that the one who ushers in Christianity himself experiences death in order to redeem those who didn't deserve to be redeemed in the first place, and then he himself is exalted. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2, that he being found in the form of a human, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross, And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How does that happen? It happens because of the paradox of the Messiah suffering. So the son's obedience to death becomes the means by which you and I could experience life. Death. Here's the paradox. Death produces victory. So at Christmas, this is what we celebrate. At Christmas, we celebrate the advent of the Savior who comes as a child. A paradoxical reality that the Son of God is crushed in order to make it possible for sinful, rebellious human beings to be redeemed. The chosen one is rejected. The obedient one is afflicted. The innocent Son of God is afflict, is condemned, and the victorious one is at first crushed. So a suffering Savior is not an oxymoron. It's actually a hopeful reality, which means we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. So this idea, this paradoxical nature of Christ's life extends not only to his life and redemption and the gospel, but it also extends to you and me right now in terms of how we live. And so let me just explain to you, for those of you who claim to be a follower of Jesus, this paradoxical lifestyle is what you're to embrace all the time. And so there's four things. There's a number, but just four that I want to remind you about this morning. And it's, this, is, this is the first one, that we are saved by coming to an end of ourselves. So the way in which you became a Christian, and if you're here today and you've not become a follower of Jesus, the way that you become a Christian, the way that you're saved from your sins, is you come to an end of yourself. The Bible has an upside-down message. The world tells you, you need to think higher of yourself, and you're the solution to your problems. And the Bible says, your problem is actually you. You're trying to self-atone, to do things on your own, and the reality is, you can't do it. You need somebody else. You need Jesus. And so you come to faith 
When you say, look, I'm a sinner and I can't do it, I need your help, Jesus. There's nothing I can do to make myself righteous. I am hopeless and helpless. And you throw yourself at the mercy of Christ, and that's when you become a child of God. So we are saved by coming to an end of ourselves. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your safe, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. There's the, the paradox. Here's the second thing. And that is once you're a follower of Christ, you can expect constant troubles and opposition. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Look. Isn't it strange that we have all these troubles in our world and yet the, the elevator music of the Christmas jingles still play? Sometimes it's just hard, isn't it? Life's difficult, cancer is diagnosed, people die, family relationships are broken, marriages tank, uh, relationships break up, and yet you hear ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, and you just want to like, ah! doesn't feel like it's a ding dong, ding dong kind of world. It feels like it's a, a bit of a dirge. Our world is broken, and it just doesn't seem right. And what Jesus tells us, what the Bible says is, well, sure, there's a a host of joy connected with the Christian life, but it also means that you ought to expect constant troubles and oppositions. Since we live in in a broken world, you could expect that it's going to be resistant. If they resisted Jesus, he says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Jesus warns us, beware when all men speak well of you. So let me just tell you, if you hang out with non-Christians and, and all the time and they all think you're cool and hip and you're just like them, you've got a big problem. There are no incognito Christians. Jesus said we'll have troubles in the world. We are living in the world, but we don't belong to this world. Hebrews 11.13 tells us we are strangers and pilgrims, and sometimes we see that clearly. And at this time of year, we need to be reminded of that. And that means that if you leave a gathering of family or friends, or you're just living in the world, and you feel like, I am a complete alien here, the reality is you are. And that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Third, the crazy thing about the Christian life, friends, is the way up is down. The Bible continually calls us to embrace a mindset of humility. Think of others as more important than yourselves. That is crazy backwards. That the way of exaltation, you want to be exalted? Humble yourself. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When a person is humble, they receive grace. Therefore, arrogant self-sufficiency is incompatible with biblical Christianity. The way up is down. Just like Jesus. And then finally... And I've said this before so many times, but it bears repeating. Hard is hard, but hard is not bad. The Bible regularly calls believers in Jesus to endure in the midst of suffering and hardship. And the rationale is this, that the paradoxical life of a Christian is that while bad things happen to you now, it is producing in you something that is far greater than you could possibly imagine. Romans 8 says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. So when things are difficult and you just wonder, what in the world is going on? How come I can't catch a break? The reality is you'd rather, according to this text, have a life of difficulty because it produces in you something far greater than you can possibly imagine. Therefore, James says, consider it all joy, my brothers, So here's the great thing. Here's why a depressed Christian just is an oxymoron. (laughs) 
You know why? Because if things are going well and you're happy, it's great. If things go bad, you're still joyful. You know why? Because when things are going great, you can be happy because you've got a good day. When they're going bad, you're happy because God's forming Christ-likeness in you. So regardless, you're always in a state of joyful contentment. Suffering produces things that are good. And therefore, although it's hard, we can still rejoice. I don't mean gleeful I don't mean happy. I don't mean yippy-skippy. I mean, look, this is difficult, but God is good. So the life of a Christian is entered in through this contrast of a sinless Savior dies a cruel death in order to save a people who didn't deserve anything but what he received. And the Christian life from that moment forward is a constant contrast, a paradox that is rooted in the very example of a servant named Jesus who suffers. And so the beauty of what we celebrate this time of year, the beauty of Christianity, is this crazy contrast between the treatment of the Messiah and who he really is. The crazy contrast of Christianity is the way God treats you despite who you really are. That is an amazing, paradoxical contrast. Christmas, like Jesus and like the Christian life, is filled with beautiful, traumatic, and eternal contrasts which make us say joy to the world the lord has come so father pray i pray that you would help us to live in light of this paradoxical nature of the life of faith i pray for some today who will who are here or will hear this message that you would um, speak to their hearts about whether or not today is the day where they need to come to the end of themselves and say, Lord, I've made a mess of my life. I've tried so many things. The only way I need a complete transformation of the heart and only you, Jesus, can do it. And I pray that with open eyes today they would see and believe. And Father, for other brothers and sisters today who have varying trials and difficulties and challenges I pray that today by the example of Christ in Isaiah 53 that you would give them hope that they can be joyful in the midst of hard circumstances they can be courageous when they fear rejection they can entrust themselves to the one who judges justly when they are unfairly treated Lord today I pray there would be a large number of people who would simply say God today I want to be like Jesus so help us Lord as we celebrate as we worship, as we remember the beautiful, contrasting realities of what this time of year is all about. We love you, and we're thankful for all you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, church, I hope that um, you'll be able to join us Christmas Eve service for and 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock. I forget which of the two it is. Love to have you uh, be there. Hope you have a Merry Christmas. If there's something we can help you with, some folks up here will be up here at the front to pray with you, all right? God bless you, Couch Park. I love you. Take care.